So, who would you say is or was the greatest man to ever live up until Jesus took that title, right? Um, maybe Alexander the Great, he's got great in his name, or uh, if more philosophically inclined, maybe Socrates, or uh, if we're more biblically minded, we might say Moses or David, but none of those are quite right. Jesus actually told us who it is. He said in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, that's a lot of big group of people, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I know that's not who most of us would think of first, but I've come to trust Jesus quite a bit, and I believe him when he says that. And with such a bold statement, at the very least, we ought to take this man's life and ministry very seriously. We ought to get to know him and understand him and learn from him. And that's what I want to do this week and next week. And this is a very appropriate time to do this as we transition right out of Christmas into the new year because how do the scriptures transition from Christmas into the ministry of Jesus? With John the Baptist, he is the transitional figure. He's the beginning of something new, and he's a part of the Christmas story also, really. I remember a couple years ago, I tried to, I had a plan. I was going to memorize the Christmas story. So I thought it'd be fun to like uh, recite to my kids each year. And my plan was to gather all the Christmassy stuff from all the Gospels and, and compile it together in the best I could in a Word document so I could tell this harmonious story. And, but I never really got past that first step because I kept running into a problem. Mixed into the story in what seemed like to me at the time a very inconvenient way was all this stuff about John the Baptist. And like, his story is really tied into Luke's account in a way that's hard to untangle. And, and in John's account, it's like almost like it, like, it, like it gets in the way. Like it's like it, he keeps sticking John in the middle of some of the most beautiful theological prose about Jesus in the whole Bible. And then he like says something about John the Baptist. And you're like, what's going on? And so... Anyway, so I, didn't, I wanted to tell the story about Jesus' birth, but I didn't want to keep talking about John the Baptist, so I just kind of abandoned that and moved on to something else. But it seems like God really wants him to be a part of this story for some reason. And God is always doing things differently than how I would do them. But if God wants us to see John the Baptist as a part of Christmas, and then he wants us to see him as the next movement of the kingdom of God after Christmas, then maybe we should honor his word. And we should let this prophet of God speak to us in this season. So let's go back to Luke's gospel, where we've been the last four weeks of Advent, and read what he has to say about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3 is where we'll be. And starting in verse 2, kind of in the middle. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In order to understand John, you need to understand at least three older prophets, uh, previous prophets. We're about to dive in and, and nerd out a bit, but I think you'll be glad we did. When you start to see the connections to the scriptures, they come alive in a way that is beautiful, and, I, and I, you'll come to love them even more. So first of these three prophets is Elijah. Elijah's awesome. He is a wild man empowered by God. Elijah came to be thought of as a kind of prototype of the prophets. These prophets were not just future seers. They were preachers speaking on God's behalf, exposing and confronting idolatry and injustice, especially among those in power. They were challenging Israel to repent and follow God. And Elijah is a prime example of this. He came up in the time of the kings, when the rulers of Israel were all corrupt, so corrupt that the nation had actually been split in half. And Elijah was sent to the northern half, which had the more corrupt leaders. And he was this incorruptible man calling out corrupt kings, but also calling the nation to repent, to repentance. He cared little for the things of the world. He lived in the wilderness, we're told, and he, we're also told that he wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he was a man of integrity, faithful to God, though he lived among a people of unfaithfulness. And this was part of what made him uniquely powerful. I mean, if you're a leader whose technique has been lies, what do you do with a man of truth who doesn't believe them? If you're a corrupt king who uses money and bribes, how do you handle a man who's content with wilderness living and rough clothing? When you're a tyrant who, whose method is intimidation, what do you do with a man who only fears God? Or if you leverage power and influence and worldly esteem, what do you do with a man who cares only about his mission and his message and only what God thinks about him? John, this was Elijah. And John the Baptist is picking up his mantle. 
In Matthew's gospel, we're told that John wore a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Now, does that sound familiar? He arrives in the wilderness like Elijah, wearing Elijah's style of clothing, challenging Israel to repent and calling out the corrupt king, Herod, for his evil and adultery. He's very clearly and intentionally identifying with the prophet Elijah. And to know exactly why that is so significant, you need to know about another prophet. The last prophet before John the Baptist, the prophet Malachi. He was speaking to an indignant Israel. God's people were accusing him of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? And God responds through Malachi with a promise. Listen to this. He says, behold. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Me. Who's speaking? God is speaking. So God of justice, he's saying, will return personally, and he will send a messenger in preparation. And he tells us this messenger will be one who purifies, like one who's a refiner of silver and gold. And then later in the book, he talks more about that coming day, the day of the Lord. And he says one more important thing about that messenger who will come first. He says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this hope in Israel of the great prophet Elijah coming as a purifying precursor to God himself arriving on the scene to initiate a new day. And here comes John the Baptist, 400 years after Malachi's prophecy, a prophet acting in a strikingly similar way to John the Baptist. I mean, to Elijah. And he's referencing that consuming and purifying fire like Malachi talked about. And everyone's thinking, is this Malachi's prophecy? Is the Lord coming? John the Baptist is clearly saying something about himself and his ministry without outright saying it. But there is one identity from the prophets that he explicitly claims for himself. And this one comes from the prophet Isaiah. This is, okay, the third and final prophet we need to look at because this prophecy is the most clearly referenced by John's ministry. I know this is a lot of prophets, but it's so good. Okay, so let me set the context for this prophecy real quick. Remember Elijah, the one we just talked about, the one that dressed like uh, John, or that John dressed like. He, He was tasked with challenging Israel to repent during the time of the kings and follow God, and he was ultimately unsuccessful in turning Israel back. And so this, the kingdom of Israel, it degrades and, and until, further and further until it's utterly destroyed and Israel's taken into captivity under the empire of Babylon. And the people of Israel are in despair and oppressed by an evil kingdom. And they feel hopeless. And Isaiah speaks into this seemingly hopeless period and proclaims that there actually is hope. In Isaiah 40, one of the most beautiful chapters, I think, he looks beyond exile and speaks hope to God's people. So let me read it to you. Where your translation says LORD in all capital letters, uh, that's a translation of God's personal name, Yahweh, and so I'll use that as I read. He says, 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now, did you notice that nameless voice crying in the wilderness like a herald before a coming king calling for the building of a highway, filling up valleys, lowering hills, leveling out the uneven land, building a road for the coming of God. Mighty God Yahweh himself is coming in person we're told in this prophecy. And everyone is going to see him returning in glory to his people. This is the great hope of the people of Israel. And that nameless herald, simply called the voice, that goes before the arrival of Yahweh himself, that is who John says he is. A voice crying in the wilderness, make way, make way. He's right behind me. God himself is coming to console and redeem his people. John the Baptist comes embodying that herald from Isaiah 40, And he goes down to the Jordan River, which is significant in the story of Israel as that's where they came into the promised land to begin life there, crossing through that river. And John the Baptist is announcing his renewal movement. He's he's preparing the way for God to come back personally among his people. He's saying Yahweh is coming, just like Isaiah 40 said. So let's get back down to the river and acknowledge our failure as a people and turn to him again for forgiveness. So, Imagine you're there, and you understand all of this. Imagine the excitement that you would feel, the expectation and the joy. Yahweh is going to come, and then enter Jesus, whose name means Yahweh brings salvation. And he was baptized by John, which seems a little strange and shocking even, And then when he is, heaven is ripped open and a voice says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus proclaims good news, saying that as you see me, God's kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. And so even from that beginning, we begin to see this amazing truth through this shocking public act of Jesus being baptized, that Jesus is God, become a human being for us to to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He didn't need baptism, right? We do. He shows us from the very beginning of his ministry that he's entering into our position, taking our place, fulfilling righteousness for us to then give it to us. And we have to cling to him, cling to him for dear life. John's ministry sets the stage for us to start to build these categories in our understanding. Jesus isn't what we expect. He's better. And so John builds this platform that helps create categories for Jesus' ministry. That's part of what he's here for. But John was also preparing the way for God in other ways. His ministry is fleshing out what exactly it looks like for us to prepare, to be ready for the coming of God. When Pastor Tim was giving me guidance for these two messages uh, after Christmas, he said, talk to us about what now? 
You know, he said the, the wrapping is still from the presents is still on the floor. Christmas is barely over. So now what? The king is here. What now? And as I meditated on that question, I realized John the Baptist answers that question for us. Christ has come. The kingdom is at hand. Now what? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. This is the call of John the Baptist. But I know that word doesn't wash over us with jolly feelings. I think in part because we've got a caricature of what repentance is in our heads. For us, repentance means minimally being sorry or saying sorry. Or at most, it means beating yourself up for your failures. But repentance is more rich and beautiful than that. Paul actually distinguishes true repentance from that character we have in our heads in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we see beating yourself up, that worldly grief is not actually repentance, it's death. But even godly grief, he says, isn't repentance, but it can, lead, it can produce repentance. And then we see how beautiful repentance is. It leads to salvation without regret. How can it do such a thing? This is a power unlike any other. It can do such a thing because repentance is not just forsaking sin. It's primarily turning to and embracing God and the new life he offers in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Like in Acts 20, when Paul describes repentance like this, I love this, he calls it repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The primary thing is not what you're turning away from, but what you are turning toward. And that is why again and again repentance is paired with belief. Like they go hand in hand, repent and believe, Jesus said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is the embrace of a new life in Jesus. An orientation toward God. The God of light and of life and of justice and of glory. Which necessarily means forsaking sin as a byproduct. Just like if you want to go west, you have to turn away from the east. But your primary objective is where you're headed. That's why I love that metaphor that Isaiah talks about of building a new highway. Like a new trail has been blazed. We've got, we've got all these twisted trails and winding and curving roads around the landscape of our hearts. And God comes and he builds a new road that doesn't regard that landscape at all. It levels mountains and goes where it wills. And, he wants to, and we, we, we want to say, if there is a God, he'll have to travel on my roads. But then God comes and says, no, I'm building a new road. My way is the highway. And you have to join me on my road to get where we're going. And this one way, this is, this is one way that you could tell if you've met the true God or simply a figment of your imagination that you've made up. A made-up God will conveniently drive on your roads and align with your priorities, not displacing anything because you're the greater one, because you made him. But the real God, 
who made you will level mountains and valleys, plowing through your life like a bulldozer, displacing your sin, altering your priorities, making you reorient your direction to his path and righteousness and glory. He comes and he says, repent. And John the Baptist is one who has met the true God. His message is God's message. And John teaches us a couple things about genuine repentance. Two things I want to point out in particular. The one that is marked by humility, or a particular brand of humility that is the opposite of presumption. And it's marked by fruit. So we are to repent without presumption, and to repent bearing the kind of fruit that is in keeping with repentance. So let's look at our text and see how he teaches us this. Look at verse 7 through 9. He said, Therefore, uh, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So when he said, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's clearly saying what he's been implying all along by his baptisms. Because in John's day, baptism was not a new thing. It just had a very specific religious purpose. It was for non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism. It was a purification ritual for unclean Gentiles to become one of them. And John, shockingly, offensively, steps up and says, not just Gentiles. Everybody needs to be baptized. He's saying Jews can't count on their heritage. They too need to repent. They too need to be cleansed and purified. This is incredibly equalizing, putting all people on the same level. And it's incredibly humbling too, which is why it's so amazing and encouraging that so many people were baptized by John. To get in that water, to be dunked, required you to lose every ounce of entitlement. In Matthew's account, John says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. He calls out their presumption. But we all do that. We all presume or assume that we deserve a place at God's right hand, that we feel entitled to things going our way. And John says, Your presumption is the deceit of pride. And unless you repent, your pride will deceive you right into the pit. We assume God owes us a good life. This is just an unquestioned assumption in our day. And it's a big one. But John doesn't assume that at all. No matter who you are. And neither does Jesus. I've been thinking a lot the last few weeks and months, even about uh, Jesus' parable of the fig tree and the story around it. I just naturally think about that when I hear of disaster striking. Because some people came to Jesus uh, to receive wisdom in light of some seemingly random disasters. A tower had fallen on some people at Siloam, and Jesus was asked about it. And he knew what people were thinking, because he's Jesus. And so he said, those, he said to them, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. 
He's challenging the foundations of how people think. Do you see this? He's saying, you assume that you do not deserve to have a tower fall on you. So when a tower falls on someone, you assume they deserved it. But in reality, you all deserve to have towers fall on you. They were no worse and no better than you. And unless you repent, you too will face destruction. Remember, this is Jesus talking. The most well-respected religious leader in history. So at least give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment. You may think John the Baptist is a wackadoodle, but at least consider what Jesus has to say carefully. He says, don't presume that everything ought to go your way. Instead, humble yourself. Forsake your entitlement and presumption and realize that you too must repent. And then Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree. He said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Man, I love Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you may be barren of any good fruit and you deserve to be cut down. But Jesus is patient, advocating, caring, He doesn't want to cut you down. He wants you to bear fruit. He will tend to you, fertilize you, and help you become what you are meant to be. But more than just tend to you, he made a way for you to be new. To alter the metaphor slightly, though you were barren and deserved to be cut down, he took the axe instead. And then He was cut down for you on the cross and he sprouted and rose into a mighty tree that bears much fruit and he grafts you into himself. He loves you that much. He's gracious with us barren trees. But as the Apostle Paul says, you have to recognize that his patience and his kindness is meant for something. It's meant to lead you where? to repentance. And true true repentance produces fruit. So John the Baptist speaks those intense words. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, when he says that, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, that means it's a new way of life. It's, It's a new way of being. It's about producing fruit. In other words, it's not just forsaking other things. Like I've said, it's about pursuing and producing certain things. But why does he call the people coming out to be baptized a brood of vipers? Well, Jesus also called people a brood of vipers once, and he paired it with the phrase serpents. Now, what comes to your mind in your Bible zone, and and what comes to mind when you think of a serpent in the Bible? Hopefully you think of a story just a couple pages into the whole thing, right? With a serpent who deceived the first woman. John is saying they are marked by the serpent and by his lies. His multifaceted lie that included entitlement, right? They really ought to be able to eat that fruit of that tree if they desire it. 
The lie that said you will not surely die if you eat what you should not eat. That same lie, you will not surely die, lulling them into complacency in sin. John is saying, don't be a bunch of serpent babies. Don't believe his lies. Instead, repent and be children of God. Where the serpent said, you can know good and evil. You can decide for yourself. You be the one who makes the decisions for your behavior. John and Jesus say, that's the way to be a barren tree. Follow Christ. And he will lead you in paths of righteousness and you will bear much fruit. So the crowds listening to John, they're starting to see what's going on. And they want to be ready for the Messiah. So they start asking him, what is this fruit in keeping with repentance? What's it look like? And John starts out more general. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So the first fruit of repentance we mention here is generosity. And then a specific subset of people chime in, the tax collectors, who were known uh, for being greedy and shady. And tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Then another group from another vocation speak up, soldiers, and they ask him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. I love this so much. Lucas tells us that people were in expectation. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning whether John was the Christ. And they were preparing for this radical revolution. And what's it look like? How would you describe what John says here? What I see is contentment, generous contentment. These crowds were thinking of revolution and defiance, and John preaches contentment. I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings the last couple months, and there's this beautiful scene that I think speaks into this contrast so wonderfully. The best character, in, in my opinion, uh, named Sam. He's with Frodo in this dark, forsaken land in Mordor, and one night, he's staring up into the sky, and he sees a white star twinkle for a while. And listen to this paragraph. The beauty of it smote his heart. And he looked up, as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been of defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. But now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. There's so much in there, but I love that unexpected contrast between defiance and hope. Tolkien says that the last time Sam had done something heroic, it was out of defiance rather than hope because he was thinking of himself. But now, filled with a renewed hope, he gets outside of himself and gains a truer perspective. And it brings peace. And these people gathered around John the Baptist, they were wanting defiance. Defiance of Rome, even defiance of evil and sin. But John says instead they need hope. 
He says you're thinking of yourself, but you need to think of God. That's hope. Hope is greater than defiance, and when you're driven by hope, you will have radical contentment. Just like how Sam could sleep in the shadow of Mordor in peace because he got his eyes off of himself to a greater beauty and hope that evil cannot touch. That awesome line, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. That's true, you know. There's light and high beauty that is forever beyond the reach of the shadow of sin and evil and death. And seeing that truth is hope. Defiance leads to turmoil and outrage and tireless striving, but hope leads to peace and contentment and generosity. When you truly repent the way we've been talking about and get your eyes off of yourself and look to Jesus, you get hope. The kind of hope that gives the freedom of contentment and the joy of generosity. One last reference from that paragraph from the Lord of the Rings about Sam. It said that, uh, that the beauty of the star smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. Let the beauty of Christ smite your heart. Let his truth pierce you as you look away from sinful and selfish desires, away from the decay of a life ruled by yourself and look to him in repentance, hope will come. And through hope, the fruit in keeping with repentance, a new kind of life, a freer, better kind of life, a way of being that blesses rather than battles, that's marked by contentment rather than consumption, giving rather than taking, integrity rather than manipulation. This is the fruit of true repentance. And whenever I think of repentance, I think of Martin Luther. I can't help it. He, he, Martin Luther also instigated a renewal movement of faith and repentance. We call it the Protestant Reformation. And the first of his 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. We are to continually turn, submitting again each morning, each hour, to his truth and his way, forsaking all others. Amen. And this requires great trust. Because it's hard sometimes to let go of what we're holding on to. To give up what we think is freedom but is really a trap. It's kind of like freeing a dog from a trap. The one thing that could lead to the dog's demise is its distrust. You have to implore the dog to trust you with its senses and whatever imagination and intelligence it has to believe that what is painful will ultimately lead to freedom from pain. That moving the paw further into the trap is the way to get it out. Freeing the dog, it's connected to its confidence in us, you see? Confidence that's shot through with emotion and even doubt, helped by whatever assurance we can supply with our voice and demeanor. If we're successful in freeing that dog, it will be because it had faith in us against what seemed natural to it. And it's like that with us. We're like that dog to God. We must place our confidence in him. 
all the more because he doesn't want to just free us from a trap. He wants to invite us into a real and intimate relationship. And most of us know that such a relationship is founded on trust. This is the call of repentance. The invitation to the freedom of hope. And a relationship of love through trust. This is Jesus' call to you this morning. The King has come. He's lived and died for you. To forgive you of your sins and welcome you home. So what now? Repent and believe. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for your grace through your Son, for sending him to make a way for us to be saved, for being patient and kind. And we thank you for your invitation, the invitation of repentance. I pray that you empower our repentance here this morning, that we all would turn to you in faith and would bear fruit through your Spirit, that you would fill us with hope and contentment, with love and generosity, that as we turn toward your Son, we would become like him. We pray in his name. Amen.